Welcome to the Living Hope Church podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. We pray that you are blessed by the sermon. Uh, We act as a resource, um, this podcast, to provide you with weekly sermons from our church um, and that you would be encouraged on your drive to work or encouraged at home when you're cleaning, that this would be an encouragement for you. And so we pray that you were blessed by the sermon today. So let's get into the sermon. This morning, we're going to just look at a very uh, important passage about how we are to live here in today. Um, And so we're going to look at living as salt and light in the United States right now. And a few years ago, um, this copy is from Chick-fil-A, but we, um, you know, on the kids meal, sometimes you get books at Chick-fil-A. And this one is called Duck for President. Has anybody heard of this book? It was originally published in 2004. Yes, my kids did because we read this multiple times. Um, It's a cute little story. Uh, Duck for President. So Duck um, is at Farmer Brown's farm. He's a member there, and Farmer Brown is working all the time. He's messy uh, from doing all the work, but he's also given some of the animals chores to do. Well, Duck has three of them, and uh, those three chores are take out the trash, mow the lawn, and grind coffee beans. Well, Duck just gets tired of doing all this work. So he holds an election on the farm. He's going to be in charge. And so Duck uh, ends up running an election. The farmer is pretty like, well, wait a second. What's going on here? This is, this is a takeover here. Uh, I did not authorize this, but the animals go through registering the votes, and there is a vote where Farmer Brown got six votes and Duck got 20. Now, of course, uh, the farmer demanded a recount, and uh, there was a a one vote found on the back end of Pig. And uh, so the new count was Farmer 6, Duck 21, and so Duck became in charge of the farm. And so the story goes through how... um, The next page is, now that Duck is in charge of the farm, he's the one that's all dirty like the farmer was, and he's having to do all this much more work just to be in charge. And he's like, this is not cool at all. So he goes through everything. He goes goes through the process again to become governor of the state. And he goes through the same process. It's it's a fun story where it goes through the same things. Lost ballots are found, but they're all in favor of Duck. And then uh, he gets to run the state. And he finds out that running the state is also hard work. He doesn't like it. This is no longer fun. So he runs for president. And, uh, and of course, he wins. Uh, and they did a recount, and they found even more votes that, uh, uh, that the, were hidden under the vice president. And it still increases his chance, and he becomes president. And, uh, and after being president, he finds out it's really hard work running a country. And so one of the last pages is him sitting in the Oval Office with the newspaper, and he looks for help-wanted ads, and he finds one. It says, duck needed, no experience necessary, must be able to mow the lawn and grind coffee beans, which is, of course, what Farmer Brown wanted him to do, and that's who put out the ad was Farmer Brown. Duck ends up leaving the Oval Office and going back just to being duck again. Um, and he, and the last one is he's working on his autobiography. So this is a fun story that really puts us in perspective where we're at in a country, right? We have uh, an election, a big election coming up. And as, as we all know, elections have consequences. And it seems that in our country right now, the, um, the different extremes have become much more, we become polarized, we become much more divided uh, than we once were. Um, and so, so it bears in mind that we need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and does that identity, which we, we spent several weeks looking at our identity, does it have something to say about what we are to do here and now in the United States? And so that's what we're going to look at. Um, our role as it relates to the election coming up. 
Um, but let me ask you a few other questions here. With the challenges that we're living in, do you have trouble navigating some of these complexities in American life? Um, for example, you know, like when there are not any great choices for any elected office, what should a Christian do? You know, I look, we look at these some candidates in different positions. Like, I don't like any of these guys. What do I do with that as a Christian? If the world is going to the pit anyway, you know, if, hey, if the world's going to uh, just all the way of the world uh, into sin and just decay and destruction, should we be even involved as Christians if, if the world's just going to the pot, so to speak? How do we balance concern for the environment with concern for people's livelihoods? I mean, we are stewards of this creation. It comes from Genesis. But how do we, how do we manage that tension between there? Concern for the environment, concern for people's livelihoods. Uh, let's take the whole COVID thing. Are medical reasons the only consideration for addressing the pandemic and the wearing of masks? Is it just medical reasons? Is that all that we look at? Are there other factors informed by a Christian worldview? So there's these tensions I'm just bringing up. We live in a very complex world. Uh, the, our actions, how, how Christians ought to act as we study scripture is not always clear as day. We actually find them to be clear as mud sometimes, right? Clear as mud. That's because we live in a complex world and not everything is specifically addressed in Scripture. It causes us to study the Scriptures and think about, okay, what does Scripture say in one place? How does that apply today with these questions and complexities that we're living in? And so that's why I found it to be an appropriate time for us to just look at this topic. And we're just going to look at this for one week. Next week, we're going to start a series in the book of Colossians, which also has things to say about living in the world right now. But um, we thought it'd be a good idea to just, let's, let's address this, because guess what? The gospel applies to all of life. And as a pastor, I am called to, to, to show how the gospel applies to all of life. And at some point, I've got to address our American life, America, living as American citizens, because the gospel says something to about how we live as American citizens. Guess what? If we lived in Germany, it would say, well, I would, my role would be, how does scripture inform us to be German citizens or African, any country in Africa? If that's where we, wherever we live, whatever country we're a citizen of, scripture speaks to how we ought to live at that time and that place. And so that's why we're addressing it this morning, because we have a responsibility. Well, at least... I think so. I think that's where Scripture points us to. And so let's take a look at what Scripture says. So as we open up, let me just pray. Father, we ask that you speak to us. I ask that you speak through me and all my frailty and weakness. I pray that what all of us hear is your word and your word alone. Guide us in the truth, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I'll read verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And while you're turning there, you know, throughout church history, there have been different positions as to how the church is to live in the world and to be involved or not involved. In fact, Throughout the scope, there have been different pockets of Christianity that have landed differently on that question, how we ought to live in a particular nation or country and participate in its political process. Some have said need to completely pull out or be very limited in how we're involved, and others said others have landed on, look, Scripture says we need to be fully involved. So just know that there's been different positions throughout church history, and um, but the predominant one is that there is definitely some kind of activity, some kind of engagement that is called for. And one of the passages that that is grounded in is this Matthew chapter 5, being salt and light. So here's the big idea, and here's where I'm going this morning. I think Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, teaches that Christians are called to engage 
to be involved with and in, with and in the world around them and not be disengaged. Let me say that again. This passage, and I think there's others that would support it, that Christians are called to engage with and in the world around them and not be disengaged. All right, so if you have open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, let me read verses 13 through 16. Jesus, this is uh, Jesus um, giving one of the most well-known or famous um, writings in Western civilization called the Sermon on the Mount. And the context is, is that Jesus is mimicking what Moses did. Moses in the Old Testament with the people of Israel was given the law, right? The Ten Commandments. God, the first version, God wrote literally wrote on the tablets of stone, gave them to Moses. Moses comes down from the mountain to speak with his people. This is the imagery that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just quickly read the beginning of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. It's the same, it's a similar imagery. So, so don't miss the point. Don't miss the fact that here Jesus is saying, here's what it means to be the people of God, just the way Moses brought down the law where God is saying, here's how to be the people of God. And so Jesus is outlining, here's how you be my followers, my disciples. So now we come to, uh, that's his overall goal, that's his overall intent in Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 13, Jesus says this, you, he's pointing to the people that he's speaking to, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, so let's take a look. There's two images that Jesus gives, salt and light. Let's take a look at each of them in, in turn. Jesus says, Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I want to make mention of two main functions that salt had at that time. And we still use them for the same. We still use salt for the same function. One is as a uh, preservative. They use salt to preserve meat. And also for flavoring, flavoring what we eat. All right, so those two main functions is what salt had. Now, as a preservative, let's think about this. What would happen to the meat or whatever you're trying to preserve with the salt? What would happen if you did not apply the salt to that object? What would happen to it? Go bad, decay, and rot, right? It would continue to die. Whereas... Salt stops that process. Of course, we know, yeah, does it ultimately? No, it's, but it definitely keeps it good for eating for a much longer time. That's why it's a preservative. It keeps, it stops the decay and the rotting. So again, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. So what does that mean? What if we were to disengage? What if the church, if all Christians were to remove ourselves from our culture, what would happen to the culture then? It would decay and rot, right? It would continue on to die. So get the, let's just understand, you are the salt of the earth. You are the preserving influence in the world. That's Jesus' point. You are the salt of the earth. So God has placed us here. Is God the author of, is God a, a God of death or of life? Life, right? So he doesn't want the world to decay and rot. 
So now you know why he's placed us here. To redeem, to keep from the world, to going to death, decay, and destruction. To stop that process. So he's placed redeemed individuals, followers of Jesus, to stop that process. And we've already pointed out that if we were to pull back, then the world would continue to decay and rot. So we are called to be a preservative to the world. But we can only do that if we are engaged, if we are in the world, if we are present in the world. Think about present, let's uh, move on to the second function of, of salt, and that is flavoring food. Who, who likes to add salt to their food? Yeah, I do. Uh, fries without salt is like, ugh. You know, I add salt. Um, so years ago, uh, I was interning as my, like, I guess my first year into, uh, in ministry. Uh, I was an intern with Camps Crusade for Christ. I was working at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I was leading a men's bio, young men's Bible study there. And uh, my parents let me borrow their, I think they got a new one, but uh, I had their bread maker. So if any of you know what a bread maker is, it's this nice little machine that uh, after a few hours, poof, this magical thing called bread comes down and smells so delicious. Of course, when it's fixed right. So here's what happened. I thought, oh, I'll make cinnamon raisin bread for the Bible study. These guys will enjoy it. Be, you know, we got guys we like to eat, right? Fresh bread, butter melted on it. It's going to be a great Bible study. So I get everything ready. I hit the start button and the room, 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 the machine starts to go. Multiple hours, it's going to be ready right on time. And I'm feeling pretty good about it. Well, uh, while the guys are there, we're, we're just connecting, starting to get into word. The little ding goes off. The bread is ready. So I pause everything. I go into the kitchen. I open it up. I look down. And when and it's, you put the ingredients in this little canister, it's like, maybe 10 inches tall or so. And you know that you've done it well when the bread is at least up to that lid or pushing above it. Well, mine was way down in the bottom. And I'm like, oh man, what did I do wrong? So I pull it out and I take a little fork and I bite it in. I was, oh, it was so salty. So what I had done was I misread the directions instead of uh, teaspoons of salt, I put in tablespoons of salt. And it ruined it. It ruined the bread. And it doesn't taste nice. So when you're, when salt, when it's mixed around, it makes the flavor better. But when it's all clumped together, it's like, ugh. It doesn't taste good at all when the salt is all clumped together. You know, we were meant, Jesus, the imagery of Jesus is, it tells us that we are meant to be mixed around in all of the culture, and all of the world. Just like salt, when salt is clumped together, it doesn't really flavor everything else because it's together, it's clumped together. It's supposed to be mixed throughout whatever you're eating. And that's when the flavor is improved, when the salt is spread throughout. You understand the point? We are supposed to be not clumped together. We are supposed to be in the world spread out, mixed in. Otherwise, it doesn't taste good. And I think here Jesus calls us to own our responsibility to the world. God has us here, and we must own our responsibility to the world. Jesus has sent us and placed us here in America as its citizens. And we are called to apply the Jesus way of life to every aspect of living. Here's a few notes about what Jesus says about losing its taste. I thought I found this uh, interesting. And so this, this word for lost its taste um, comes from the Greek word meaning to become insipid. All right. Now I know just like I did when I read it, I was like, huh, what does insipid mean? I don't know that word very well, uh, but here's what insipid means. Bland, inane, watered down. It's not a good thing. And the root word 
Okay, so this Greek word comes from a different root word that means this, dull, stupid, absurd, blockhead. Yeah, that's, that's in what I read. Um, and so I think many of us are thinking Charlie Brown right now, right? Blockhead. Uh, but the root word means dull, stupid, absurd, blockhead. This is part of the, what it means to lose its taste. And in English, it's where we get the, the word moron. So moron. So if we were to reread this, with that meaning that you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become morons, moronic, bland, inane, watered down, how shall its saltiness be restored? This word is used four times in the New Testament. And in the other instances that's not relating to salt, it is translated as foolish. And so guess what? That's what we need to be careful in being salt, that we remain salt and we don't become foolish in where God has placed us, that we don't become morons, blockheads, inane, unwise, watered down to the world that God has placed us in. Related to this and being the salt of the earth relates to other passages such as that we are called to be wise. We are called to be a wise people and champion the truth. We are to hold fast to the truth. Let me just turn to John. I'll read it to you. You can just stay in Matthew. John chapter 8. Verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. As a result of abiding in his word and being his disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other places, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Holy Spirit that's placed in our hearts when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus is in places of Scripture called the Spirit of truth. God values the truth. And as his people, we are called to value the truth, to hold fast to it, because it reflects who Jesus is. It's where Jesus is, is in the truth. He is the truth. And truth is how we fight against the kingdom of the enemy. Truth is how we fight against the kingdom of, an, of the enemy. Guess what? As a Christian, we're on a particular side. And we're resisting the enemy, whose leader is Satan. And in John 8, later after that passage I just read, Jesus refers to Satan as the father, gives him a title, the father of lies. So if we're not walking in the truth, guess what? We're operating in the wrong kingdom. Not in the truth means we're in the kingdom of the enemy, the father of lies. And that's why as salt, salt of the earth, we are called to be people of truth. Now, with the internet, we have the ability to communicate very quickly, and we all have experienced emails that have been sent to us that may not have been the most accurate. Has anybody received an email that was not true? Yeah, I have. Um, you know, um, when I thought of this, I just thought of my dad. Uh, my dad, who's been with the Lord now for uh, over three years, um, you know, when he was alive, he would often forward these emails that he'd get. They were mostly political in nature. He was loved to listen to talk radio. He was very engaged in uh, politics. Uh, that's probably where I get my heart for that kind of engagement is from his example. Um, but he would forward these emails uh, to me and my brothers. And, uh, you know, finally got down to a point where I was like, okay, I got to check this out first to see if it's accurate. Because he would just read in, and it's, well, it sounds right, so he would forward it. Um, and then I would look into it, and, and I'd have to email, Dad, please don't pass this on, because it's not true. Um, because that's what we're supposed to be known by, by truth, that we, we hold fast to it, we seek it out. It is worth pursuing. 
And so in this time of politics all over the place, we need to make sure that to be salt, that we are holding fast to the truth. And when we see a claim come, we need to make sure that it's accurate. We need to make sure that it's true. And that, that requires work on our part. Now, of course, there are definitely good, solid sources, people who are credible, people who do the research for us, for others that we don't have time for. But the bottom line is we are called to hold fast to the truth in order to be salt. There's a second thing that we're called to be as being in being salt, and that is to be loving. In John 13... Let me just read that to you. John 13, Jesus with his disciples on the last night, right before he's betrayed and goes to the cross. Verse 34 through 35 in John 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so that's the connection. Remember, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to his followers. He's saying, this is how you identify yourself as my people, as my followers. You are the salt of the earth. And one of the ways that we are salt is that we hold fast to the truth because Jesus is the truth. And another key way that we are identified as disciples, as his followers, is through our love that we demonstrate not only to each other, but to our neighbors. Now, interestingly, okay, so here I want to make a bridge. Look, what goes on in our hearts informs us how we ought to interact with the world around us. What goes on in us reflects how we ought to live in the world around us. So what does God do in our hearts in redeeming us? He works with two major things. The Spirit works on two major levels. Truth, bringing us truth about who we are and about what the world is and how we are to interact. Truth, but also love. The Spirit applies love. Remember, when we ate of the table and ask the Spirit to surface the truth about ourselves, I reminded us that the Spirit does it out of love, not condemnation. He does it out of love. And so as we, so that's what the Spirit does in our hearts, and that is how we ought to interact with the world around us. That as we partner with God in redeeming the world, we are to speak truth in love. And so the way that the Spirit does truth and love in our hearts, what happens? He removes the deadness in our hearts and brings us life. So when truth and love are together, they produce life. That's how God uses them in our hearts. And he does the same thing through us to the world around us as we are mixed in all around the world as salt. We are to communicate love and truth to those around us, bringing life. You understand the connection here? Our role in partnership with God is to bring life to that which is already dead and would continue to die if the salt were to remove itself, if we stopped being a preservative. And so as we speak truth out of love to our neighbors in whatever capacity, it brings about life. So what about the political process? Guess what? When we support things that support truth and love, they bring about life. That's the connection point. So what goes on in here, we live out here. And it preserves the people around us from continuing on in death and decay. And that includes the things that we, the, the salt, flavor or are influencing. Okay, salt has an influence on the flavor, right? 
We just talked about this. So we, as the salt, are to have an influence to those around us. And that includes what we vote for or don't vote for. And so now I'm trying to give you a paradigm of what to think about. Hey, well, how do I vote for certain things? Well, is it based on truth? And is it based on love? If it's based on those two things, then guess what? It's going to help bring about life to whoever that law or person's office applies to. But it's only as the salt is in the food. If we pull ourselves back, if we clump together, it tastes bad and it does not preserve. That is why Christians are called to engage Without our engagement in the world around us, the world continues to die. And that's not what God wants. Jesus brings up another illustration, another picture, if you will. He's brought up salt, and then he brings up light. You are the light of the world. So notice the the very big descriptions. You are the salt of the earth, right? Not just the salt of Medina. Not just the salt of your little corner. Salt of the earth, You are the light of the world. Okay, so notice how Jesus is talking and saying that you are a part of it all. You you are in the world right here. You're responsible for it all. I've placed you in the world because you are the light of the world. So what does light do? If If we were to turn off all the lights in here, we couldn't see, right? Well, we'd be able to see a little bit because we got some light. I don't know if any of you have ever been um, caving, but years ago I got to go caving uh, multiple times. It's really fun. But you always want to make sure you have a light and batteries. Because, and we did this once, we sat in a group, we got into a little nestle in this one cave that we were in. We all turned off our lights and we just sat there. And I could, I could go like this. I didn't see, I couldn't see anything. It was the pitch blackness was something I'd never experienced before. But all one person had to do was just turn on a light, one light, and then we could see. Light reveals. Light shows things. Right? It's like a, a part in a scary movie, right? There's a monster coming, it's all dark, and then many, some scenes, the person turns a flashlight Boom, there's the monster there. It reveals things. Light shows what is there. Light allows us to navigate and find direction. Ships of old, look at the stars, the little tiny beams of light in the sky. They use those lights to help navigate, to put them on the right path of their journey. So light reveals it is a good thing. You know, the Christians who came to America helped shape its government because of the way that they lived. They lived as lights. They sought to be light bearers of Christ. Um, Little quick history thing here. There is a book written in the 1830s by a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville. I hope I've pronounced that correct. It's called Democracy in America. This is a classic, classic work that looks at American society back then. And in it, he attributed the structure of American government, this representative, this democratic republic form of government, and he attributed it to the Puritans, who were some of the first Christians to arrive in America. Because it was the Puritans who set about to structure a society where people could be free. Remember, they fleed from England because they weren't free to worship as they saw fit from what Scripture said. And so they left to find a new place. God brought them here, and so they sought to form a society that allows for anybody to have freedom to worship. But to Tocqueville points out that as the Puritans and their way of life, which was informed by Scripture, set up the proper foundation for the Constitution to be written as it was for the form of government that we have today. Where people could be free. In being the light of the world, 
Again, they operated that they were lights to the world. They sought to structure a society to be lights based on the way of, way of life based on Jesus. And Jesus says, we are the light of the world. We are to reveal and show something. Well, what are we to show? We have the opportunity as the followers of Jesus to show others a better way of life. A better way of life. That's how we are to be light. And what's that better way of life found in the way of Jesus? It is the way of peace. Now, I need to backtrack here and unpack this word peace because we automatically think, oh, two siblings that aren't fighting anymore, they have peace. Two countries who are no longer fighting against one another, that's peace. Yes, that's a notion of peace, but the biblical understanding of peace goes much deeper and it's much richer. So let me just briefly expound so that we all have an idea that when I say the better way of life that Jesus leads us to is the life of peace, it's not just that we're pacifists, if that's what Jesus was saying. No, he's pointing to a much deeper, richer notion of peace that we all long for, that our hearts all need. The biblical understanding of peace is, is, a, is, a, is a living out where everybody is fruitfully employed with work. You know, there's some kinds of work that we don't like to do, right? I mean, who takes joy in cleaning the toilets in your house? Does anybody? I, don't, I hope I'm... Okay, good, good. That's what I thought. Uh, it's not fun, but guess what? It needs to be done. There are certain kinds of things here in this fallen world that require work that is not enjoyable. Guess what? Peace in the place of shalom in the garden, work was enjoyable all the time. Now, how would you like to be fruitfully employed and enjoy it all the time? That is the kind of world that Jesus wants to recover. Where the things that we do, we find enjoyment. It's fruitful. And it helps other people. So other people, there's no poverty in the world of shalom, of peace that God is going for. It is a world with healing. We go back to, we go to the end of, of the Bible, the end of the story, where we're headed, Revelation. God describes a place with no tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. That's where we're headed. That's our destiny. And God has called the church to share that, to share the truth of Jesus Christ so that everybody can head towards that destiny. Because right now they're headed towards death and destruction and decay. And guess what? If we pull back and are not engaged in the world, that's where they're going. So Jesus called us to be in the world and engaged with what's going on around us because we're salt and we're light. William Wilberforce was a British politician who used the political structure of his day to set people free because of unjust practices allowed by certain laws. That was slavery. And by being salt and light, William Wilberforce was instrumental in abolishing the vast majority of slavery in the British Empire of his time. That's how you be salt and light. He was engaged in the process. He saw something that was going on. He involved himself to bring about justice, to bring about peace for those people by eliminating, trying to get rid of a horrendous practice of slavery. So yes, good things can come about when we are engaged in the political process. But here's the thing. Only, and I mean only, a Christian worldview, a view of the world based on Scripture, 
Only a Christian worldview applied to a society, a group of, a community of people, can enable that society to flourish, to thrive, to be at peace. And that's the same with families and individuals. Only as families or as individuals live according to God's way of life will they experience peace. So guess what? A society will not experience peace when they have laws on the books that allow a ways of life that takes us away from God and Jesus' way of life. They will not experience peace. They will head towards death, decay, and destruction. And they will continue that way until the church, until followers of Jesus who know the better way of life act as lights and say, no, let us show you a better way. Let us give you the light of the wisdom of Jesus to show you a better way. Now, of course, one question comes up. Now, wait a second, Pastor Matt. Isn't that like legislating morality? You know, isn't this uh, separation of church and state? You know, doesn't that bring that up? Well, with this phrase that you shouldn't or can't legislate, legislate morality, let's just keep in mind that any law that's passed is legislating morality. Right? Any law says this is wrong, this action is wrong, and you shouldn't do it. Or this action is right, and there's certain rewards for it. That's morality. The question is, what's the basis of that morality? What's the basis? That's what we need to be looking at. So we can't avoid legislating morality because no matter if the atheist presents legislation or the Christian, whatever's passed is legislating morality of some kind. The question is, is it a good morality? And that's where, if we really love the truth, we'd be able to discern that basis and whether it's good or not. So we can be salt, preservative, and bring good flavor, meaning life and peace to our nation. So let's talk about application. The main application, I just want to encourage you about engagement in our world today as Americans is to vote. To not vote is a choice to disengage. To vote is a way to engage with the world, to be lights, to be salt and light. Of course, I haven't told you how to vote, and I'm not going to. But I do want to give, I'm trying to show you that Jesus has given us guidelines for how to vote. Scripture is clear on many things that should guide us on how to vote. But the first point of application is that vote. And tomorrow is the last day to register to vote for this coming election. If you've not registered, please, let me strongly encourage you to register to vote. Citizens have a relationship to who they are citizens of. We talked about our identity as citizens of heaven. Guess what? We have a responsibility and a way to live life as citizens of heaven. We are also American citizens, and we have a duty to be engaged, to be salt and light in the world, to live as good citizens of America. And in this country, we are privileged to be able to choose our leaders, whom we delegate authority to them to make decisions that affect all of us. We are very lucky to live in that kind of country where the main leader is chosen every four years, and we get to have a say in that. There are countries, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ and other places of the world, they don't get that choice at all. And so their role as citizens of heaven and in that country is different than ours. So, first point of application, vote. So here are two guidelines for how to vote that, that Scripture gives us to guide on how we vote and who we vote for. First, 
Seek the truth in who and what you vote for. Know what you're voting for. Know who you're voting for as best as you can. Obviously, people can put up masks. We, all, we do it all the time. In here and to our neighbors, we, put, we are able to put up masks. We're able to pretend to be somebody that we're actually not. And guess what? Politicians are not any different. So there's going to be a challenge there, but we ought to seek the truth in who and what we are voting for. Now, in voting for people, you have the person themselves, but also the policies that they stand for, what they say they want to accomplish, person and policies. And of course, God cares very much about character. So that's one of the things we look at. As Christians, we ask, what kind of person am I voting for? What do those who are closest to this person say about them? What's their track record, their past record of behavior, those sorts of things? Those are important. We want people of character. Those, those um, because Christ says the core of our problem is at the heart, that's where God's redeeming, that what comes out of the heart shows us what kind of person they are. And that's important to, to God. So we need to look at the person. The second thing is, we also look at the policies. What do they stand for? What does this person stand for? And does that contribute to people thriving? In other words, does it contribute to peace? What they stand for, what they say they want to accomplish. And if it does, then that's your guidance. Okay, it's in line with peace. This might be the person I'm, I need to vote for. Okay, but what about when the person and the policies don't quite match up? Like, what about having to make a choice between the person or the policies? Well, let me bring up something for you to think about. Stalin was um, in Russia. Uh, he was a dictator, part of the communist regime there. And he was responsible for killing millions, like in the tens of millions of Russian Jews. Um, he was not a nice guy. Um, so if I were to say, if we were voting for somebody like Stalin, it would be a pretty clear choice. We don't vote for him. He's not a good guy. But what about the situation, what if Stalin was a nice guy? Should we still have voted for him if we had that chance? So in other words, his policy, what he was attempting to accomplish, doesn't change, but he's a nice guy. What do we, what do, we do with that? What do you guys think? Do we, in that situation, if Stalin was a nice guy, do we pick person over policies or policies over the person? Policies over the person. I agree with you. Okay, so that should help guide you and help you think about our choices today. How do we pick? Do we pick according to the person or the policy? Because the outcome is what we're trusting God for, to be salt and light. The policies sometimes take precedence over the person. There are times when we have to look past the person because we're all imperfect, right? Jesus, hey, he's without sin, cast the first stone, right? We're never going to put the perfect person in office because there is no perfect person here on earth. And so I'm trying to give you a framework to be salt and light, to weigh things, person, policies, character, yes, important, policies, yes, important, but how do we weigh those when they're in tension? And so that's why I'm trying to give you some questions to think about as we head up to this election on how to vote. Because sometimes, yes, the policies matter and need to take precedence over the person. And sometimes it's the opposite. So vote according to truth. Seek the truth in who and what we vote for to be salt and light to the world. And secondly, we vote according to love. Now, let me explain this. 
What I've been trying to argue for is that if you choose not to vote, you are thus pulling yourself and thus the love of God away from your world, away from the culture. But an act of love is when we engage the world. All right? If you choose not to vote and thus engage in the world that God has placed us in, then my question is, in choosing not to vote, is that a choice out of love? Is that a choice out of love? All I'm asking is the question to examine your heart in whatever you decide to do. God knows your heart. I don't know it. I'm not going to tell you how to feel, how to think, how to choose. You need to get that from God. But whatever you choose to do, we are called to be a people known by love. That we want peace for our fellow man to know because that points to God. Like I said, it points to the truth. But are you choosing whatever you do? Is it out of love? Because God is active in our world and he's active out of love. And he calls us to follow his example. Let me pray. Father, I don't know why you led me to deal with this such a big topic. This requires years to unpack your word, to help us navigate. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you help, that you lead us and guide us to be people of wisdom and truth to be people of love, that that's what we're known for in order to be salt and light. You call us to help preserve the world. And Jesus, that's only done through you. And you call us to be lights to the world, to show people a better way of life. Would you lead us in wisdom? We thank you for your word, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.